Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Pronman back with another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. Today we are going to zero in on the top of the draft and we are joined by a couple of special guests from Montreal, holders of the first overall pick, uh, Arpan Basu and Marc-Antoine Godet. We are uh, really excited to have you guys on and, and I guess to start off, Arpan, you, you wrote a story uh, this week where you kind of dove into some Shane Wright film and, and really kind of checked out what made him special, what makes him a highly touted prospect. I'm curious, as you watched it, did it change your opinion at all about his fit for Montreal at the top of the draft? Um, Well, I can't say it changed my opinion because I didn't have one before doing that. And the reason I did it is because I didn't have an opinion and I can't, I know, I don't watch junior hockey during the season. I'm busy enough watching the NHL and I kind of hate draft season because we're expected to immediately shift from this all-encompassing look at the NHL team and all of a sudden become experts on these kids that we've never seen play. And so I, I'm, always, I'm always somewhat uncomfortable, but with them holding, with the team I cover holding the number one pick, I just wanted to at least get a decent sense of what this kid is all about. And even then, I don't have a full picture. But what I saw, I saw a kid who plays sort of an NHL-style game already, who's able to fit into a structure that's... Um, that's being asked of him uh, that doesn't necessarily that really sort of emphasizes the team game over his own individual skills. I feel he, he will very willingly fit into that structure. Never did anything that struck me as overly selfish always. And so I think that might hurt him, I guess, in the eyes of, you know, evaluators looking at him in a draft year who want him to kind of shine um, he just strikes me as a kid who's who's willing to just fit into whatever the team is trying to get accomplished. And that's kind of the number one takeaway I took from watching him. You know, the, the term I used in the piece was unspectacularly effective because, you know, he doesn't, he does, you don't come out, of, you, don't, you know, you don't see him do something and, and instantly be like wowed or or find it to be incredibly skilled or extraordinary in any way. Uh but he keeps piling on all these little decisions, all these little actions, all these little plays that as they get piled on, it just shows to what extent he's very consistently effective. You know, it's 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 very rare that you see a shift where you just look at him and say that that was a bad shift. I really like the way that you kind of wove in things that Martin San Luis has talked to you guys about to the piece to, to kind of show. I, to me, I think that's relevant for the fit. But I'm curious with a new general manager, obviously the, the coaching probably isn't going to have as much of, a, of an impact on the decision as the front office is. How much do we know about what Ken Hughes values in players? Well, I think that he's he's the same as most general managers in the sense that centermen are, are of higher asset value. He didn't didn't go out to say it as much when it came to to Shane Wright, but I think that you hear him talk, and and it's clearly something the center center position just holds more value. So when you are in a situation where you have to pick between uh, Shane Wright, Logan Cooley, and Yurov Slavkovsky, well, that's where that's where Wright and Cooley I think uh, are a step ahead. But uh, you don't you don't want to pick your your guy based on your actual roster or who the coach is. Uh, but there's clearly a fit there because, you know, Nick Suzuki is, you know, a top of a lineup type of defense uh, of sentiment. But after that, I mean, there's definitely 
a need for the Canadians to go get another sentiment, another top six guy, uh, eventually to replace Christian Dvorak, who would be better suited uh, to be slotted in the third hole. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's, you know, there's a reason that Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon went after Martin St. Louis as hard as they did and, and really, you know, shocked the hockey world kind of to bring this guy up from uh, youth hockey in Connecticut uh, straight to the NHL is because, you know, there's sort of a like-minded view of how the game is supposed to be played. The, the front office likes the way Martin St. Louis views how the game should be played. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you that it's really this is a front office decision and it will not be predicated on what the coach wants or or needs. Uh, but the unmitigated support that the front office has shown for this coach gives you some sort of intent, gives you some sort of idea of how the front office views um, the type of player that, that they want to have. Because if, if it lines up with Martin St. Louis at this point, Um, I think it's a decent proxy for how the front office also views um, the players that they want to add to this team. One thing I would like to ha add is it's, an, it's a new front office that's making that decision right now for the Montreal Canadiens. And it's very, it will be very interesting to see who's going to be making that decision because there's a lot of voices that new are involved in that decision. Too, right? Exactly. So you have... A, a president, uh, a vice president of hockey operations in Jeff Gorton. You have a new general manager in Kent Hughes. You have two co-directors of, of scouting in uh, Nikolai Bobrov and Martin Lapointe. So those two guys, it's not even clear who's going to be, how internally this is going to, to go and who's going to have the final say in structuring their list between those two men. Arpin mentions the influence of, of Martin Saint-Louis. And let's not forget that the front office also wanted to have at least one guy from the, uh, that would be at the basis of their analytics department prior to the draft in order to fuel uh you know the the draft reflection with some data with some you know so so there's going to be an opinion coming from the analytics side too that's going to be put in the balance so it it makes for many influential voices that will chip in to determine who's going to be uh, their number one pick. And I have a hard time imagining that between all those guys, it's going to be a consensus. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of debate around the table. I would, I would just add the voice of Vesala Cavalier to that, to that group. Um, he was brought in as an advisor to hockey operations, but when they made the, um, the Tyler Toffoli deal, um, They acquired a prospect by the name of Emil Heinemann from, from Calgary in that deal. And Vaisal Cavalier poured through video on that kid before they made that deal. So I think his input is also going to be in that, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen sort of scenario that Marc Antoine just laid out. He's another cook that's probably going to be in that kitchen. I really like what you said about kind of the values of centers. And that's a, a position that I obviously, um, I, I agree with that opinion, but there are every once in a while drafts where it, as it turns out the winger, which is, I would say probably the least valuable of the positions um, ends up just being the better player. I, I would kind of go back to the 2018 draft. And I think if you were redoing it today, I don't know what Corey would say about this for me. I think Andrei Svechnikov would go one, even ahead of a couple of really, really good defensemen that were in that draft. And, you know, we don't know necessarily if you're Sovkovsky's in that, here yet, but he's having a heck of a performance at the World Championships right now. I'm, I'm curious, how possible does it seem to you guys right now? Like how, where, where should the kind of Slavkovsky uh, odds be at right now? How, how real a possibility is that? Well, I, I think that there is a possibility. I, w I still think that the Canadians would be more inclined to go towards Shane Wright. But when I mentioned that there's going to be heated discussions around the table is, you know, the one thing that's been that that's been uh nagging Shane Wright's reputation throughout this season is the fact that sometimes he's not you don't feel as though he's fully committed or engaged and you know leading the charge and 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 bringing his teammates into the fight and i think that for some guys around that table this come it might be something that will go against him whereas Slavkowski just his player profile him being a power forward who's got who's already physically mature uh who brings components to the game that are hard to find no forget about the position but just the 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 toolkit is something that's hard to find so uh i can easily see how it could be an attractive proposition for the canadians so at the same time can't use mentioned the other day he said listen if we are 
if there's no prospect that's clearly above the other ones, we will really take into consideration what's our need. And sure. in terms of needs, it's not just the positional needs, but you always need a guy like Slavkovsky. But the Canadians could also say, well, we already have a guy like Josh Anderson, who's like uh, a, a power forward, a speedy power forward, in the slower but more puck protection type of player. They still have Yoel Armio, even though he's really coming down a, a down season. And Slavkovsky, if he, he reaches his potential, he could be sort of a better version of those two guys mixed together, 50% Josh Anderson, 50% Yoel Armia. But the good Yoel Armia, not the one that's sleepy 70% of the time. <laughs> I, I guess a, a related kind of point off of that then would be where, and this maybe not so much informs the pick per se, but where does Montreal view themselves in, in kind of their timeline? Are they at the start of a long rebuild here? Are they thinking this can be a quick retool? I'm sure Carey Price's situation is going to factor in Big time to this. What's your guys' read on where Montreal sees itself right now? I don't think they know, to be honest. Um, because of what you just mentioned, the Carey Price situation kind of weighs on everything that they can or can't do this offseason. I think when I think that's a shifting timeline. Um my impression or my read, uh, based on you know a number of things, is that I think they they feel that they just They don't, they're not in a position where they have to force anything. So it's not going to inform this pick in any way, shape, or form. Um, it might inform some of the other things they do this offseason and some of the other things they do at the draft. They have they have a, a good amount of draft capital to get creative and do some things that, and be aggressive if they want to. Uh, but I just don't get the sense that this season is anything more than a transition year to them, that they need to – there's a lot of financial things that they need to clean up And and whether that happens this offseason or whether it happens over the course of next season, it kind of has to happen before they can make any meaningful steps forward other than accumulating, you know, some prospect capital and some and some talent in the organization. But the the whole financial mess of Carey Price's knee and Carey Price's status puts that whole process on hold to a certain extent and and the mystery around it or the lack of certainty in terms of how his knee's going to respond, whether he can even ever play again. Um, cast a massive shadow over everything they could possibly do. So, so I think the answer to that question is that I don't know. I don't think Marc Antoine knows, and frankly, I don't know if Ken Hughes and Jeff Gordon know because they have to. They need an answer on Carey Price before they can make that determination. Yeah, and what I would add to that is I think it's fair to say that the Canadians are not about to go into a scorch earth type of mentality and go the root of uh, of the Phoenix, uh, the Arizona Coyotes, for example. Uh, they would prefer if, if that turnaround was rather quick. But this, where would, for example, next season fall into that? As Arpin eloquently put it, we, we don't know yet. But I, I suspect that they would be okay with living with another difficult season next year and then try to, to really go forward the, the year after. But I don't think that they're going to be in for or a long rebuild and say, well, we're going to bite the bullet for the next three or four years. I don't think that's where they're going. But you, you also don't kind of see them saying, you know, what Chicago and Stan Bowman did a couple a, a year ago that we're one Seth Jones away from being contenders again. Kind of. <laughs> oh <my laughs> no, God. that is that is definitely not happening. They're not going to be trading a first round pick for any player who's in the league right now. Um, I mean, I think just to further to what Marc Antoine said is that. This whole unknown is kind of a – it's a bit of a blessing in disguise for these guys. Like, I mean, it's really – a lot of people in Montreal are clamoring for the Canadians to be in the mix for number one in 2023. I don't think the Canadians have any intention of intentionally being in the mix for number one. But I think the beauty of the situation for them and, and you know, the beauty – maybe that's not the wrong word. But, I mean, Carey Price's situation creates a scenario where you can go into next year with a – more or less a status quo situation, which if nothing significant changes other than the development of Suzuki, the development of Caulfield, Romanov, a few other young guys, um, there's nothing meaningful that the Canadians could really do with that financial situation ahead of them. So they could, and in fact, would most likely be a lottery team next season, if not, not a whole lot changes. And they could be in the mix for maybe number one overall, but at least a top 10 pick, which would be, Uh, you know, back-to-back -back years adding top 10 talent would be something this organization really needs. And and they kind of don't have a choice but to do that. I mean, I could be wrong, but 
the current situation makes it so that they can kind of accept that and say, listen, we're, our hands were tied and it's kind of a good outcome regardless. That's why we, we hear so many, uh, so many fans say, oh, well, if they, if they draft Shane Wright, you know, he could go back to the OHL for another season. After all, he missed a whole year, so he could, he could play another season. That, that's going to be fine if he goes back to juniors. Or Slavkovsky, well, he could, he could stay uh, in Finland for one more year. That's okay. So no rush in bringing like a, a high-profile talents in, on the roster just yet. It can wait another year. It's just interesting to me because I think timing-wise, we've all gotten used to a certain core of the Montreal Canadiens, and, and certainly that core has obviously already started to, to unfurl. Um, and, and as I look ahead, I guess I wonder who who is kind of the next core. I assume, obviously, there, there's some obvious ones, right? You know, Nick Suzuki's in there, Cole Caulfield's in there. I think Alex Romanov's probably still in that mix. Yeah. And I would probably say Justin Barron belongs in the similar conversation there, though you guys can tell me if I'm wrong there. Well, he might he 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 might eventually become that in terms of Baron. I mean, we haven't really we didn't get a good sample. Unfortunately, he got hurt very early, like very soon after coming over from Colorado right. and that Arturi Lekkonen deal. But yeah, he has the potential to be part of that core. I mean, the three guys who identified Alex Romanov led the Canadians in ice time basically from the moment Ben Chirac got traded. So he became their de facto number one defenseman from that point onward. He played uh, his game evolved by leaps and bounds, and honestly. Th- You know, the impact of Martin St. Louis' arrival on Cole Caulfield really monopolized a lot of the attention. And even Nick Suzuki really monopolized a lot of the attention. The, the development of Alexander Romanov's game under Martin St. Louis uh, was in many ways even more remarkable because it he really changed the way he, because of the added ice time, you know, the big the big knock or or what previous coaches had a problem with with Alexander Romanov was was reining in the energy. He wanted him to play within himself and within the game more often and not go out constantly looking to make an impact on every single shift and basically skating himself into mistakes. Um, what the added ice time, I think, allowed him to do is to learn how to manage a game better. And, and, and he really developed in that area. He was playing, uh, you know, north of 22 minutes a night, by you know, down the stretch, down the last 30 games or so. So um, that's a really, really interesting development. I don't think Alexander Romanov projects to be a prototype number one defenseman. Actually, I, I know he doesn't, but um, he could be a hell of a top four defenseman. He's a very good piece. And so I think, uh, you know, he is part of that core right now. But what's clear is that the core needs more guys. <laughs> like That's really what's the most obvious thing right now. Yeah, I don't think there's anybody apart from the three guys you mentioned. And that's one of the reasons why they finished 32nd in the league. Yeah, I, I you look, Romanov is. I think I agree with Arbon. He's. A, I think he projected the top four defenseman, but that's you know, presuming they add a forward with the first overall pick and probably Shane Wright. That scenario of their team right now. You know, I like Justin Barron. I like Romanov a lot, but they. It's hard to admit they need a lot more on that blue line going forward to even have some sort of semblance of a good team. Well, they need top pair talent. I mean, that's they have lots of guys. Like, listen, Caden Gooley's going to be, I think, a good Gooley, NHL defenseman. Yeah, yeah Gooley's a really good player. He's up there with yeah. Barron, if not above Barron. He's a really good player. Yeah, and then they have a lot of they have a lot of lottery tickets on defense. You know, I mean, Jordan Harris. I liked what I saw from him in Montreal, but like, um, it's not quite clear where he would slot in on an NHL defense. You know, I, I mean, he I could agree. be a he could be a bottom pairing guy. He'd be, a, I think, he'd be a really good bottom pairing guy. He's just a mobile, smart player. Uh, but they have a whole bunch of other, you know, wild cards like, you know, Matthias Norlander, who got some time in the AHL and is is who knows what he's going to be. You know, Jaden Struble. There's a bunch of guys, but they don't have Logan Mayu. Logan Mayu as know. well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who, who was just okay this season when he actually played? Like he's a little productive, but you know, we'll see. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was fine. We'll see. But... We're a couple of years from knowing if he's even going to have a future in Montreal, frankly, but we'll see. Right. Well, it, well they're, they're a year, they have to make that decision within a year now. Right. Yeah, by next summer. That's right. Yeah, I meant, I meant like two seasons away, I guess, from seeing him in, in Montreal or not. Honestly, like his situation would be a whole podcast unto itself. But yeah. um, it's uh, the problem, the whole – I mean, that's why the two defensemen who are near the top, you know, I think it – It sounds like it would be a stretch to consider Nemitz or Yurichek at number one. I'd agree. Uh, uh, but they represent needs for the Montreal Canadiens. They do. So if there's a deal to be made out there, and listen, Arizona crafted their entire season to pick number one this year. If they can pull something out of Arizona and wind up at number three and get their pick of the, the one of those two defensemen, then maybe that's 
maybe that's something they could consider. But you know, in my mind, when you're when you have Shane Wright sure. just sitting there waiting to be drafted by you, sometimes it's good not to overthink things. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nine or ten picks, I believe, in the first four rounds, depending on. I think there's an Edmonton condition in there that decides whether that pick is this year or not. How many if of they those make the, you, if Edmonton makes the Cup final, then they get right. then they get next year's second round pick instead of this year, yeah. Which looks a little more plausible than than I guess I would have said <laughs> yeah. at the time of the trade. Um, but how many of those do you think they're going to make? Is, is this like a situation where you think they do them all? Or they, is there a situation where you you move a couple to try to get up back into the the first round? Uh, what, what do you see well, there? What's interesting is that under previous management, Marc Bergevin was almost allergic to trading up. He was a lot more in the, of the mentality of trading down, uh, multiplying the the assets and have, as he used to say, and Trevor Timmons used to say, have more darts to throw on the, on the board. This time, Kent Hughes is open to trading up. Uh, I think that the, I think that number the number one pick overall, trading down to three. Could be a, the, the, a smart play, who knows? But I think that I'd be looking and trading up for that that second pick that they'll have at the end of the first round, uh, the the one of the, uh, the the Calgary that belongs to the Calgary Flames, and for that having all those that that those assets in the second and third round, those are bargaining chips that could help you propel yourself and gaining ground, uh, you know, late in that first round. So. I, I really the fact is the Canadians have so many prospects already in their in their pipeline. Not necessarily top prospects, but definitely they've got a lot of guys that are worthy of a pro contract. That how many more of those, you know, flyers are you going to take on on this this third rounder or that third rounder? At some point, you, you got to consolidate, and I think that's the, either if it's trading some assets to move up uh or 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 sliding those picks to next year by trading them to other teams uh th- those are options to be considered but i you know as you mentioned nine potentially 10 picks in the first four rounds no way they're going to draft 10 players i'm sure of that yeah and i i think we could also just like talk about the the hockey theory of trading you know from 1 to 3 1 to 2 1 to 4 whatever i think in practice though i think for for the host uh, team to trade the first yeah. overall pick is a very easy way to get pelted with beer cans <laughs> on the stage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I I just can't see that happening personally. No, and the first time the first time this franchise has the first overall pick in 42 years, um, it's also another way to get pelted with beer cans on the stage. So, I mean, it's it's yeah. It's, I, I don't know the likelihood of trading down to three. And I honestly don't think the chances are very high, even if it might make some modicum of sense. But I do agree with Marc Antoine that that Calgary Flames pick, which will be somewhere in the 27 to, you know, 32 range, I guess, technically. um, They do have that, that second, second round pick from Edmonton, assuming Edmonton doesn't make the cup final that they could use as, as currency to move that pick up into maybe the early 20s or the late teens. And I think, if the player that they covet slides that far, um, I think that's something that they wouldn't hesitate to do. There are two teams, Pittsburgh and Washington, that are really in need of picks. They don't have a lot of them, and they sit, if I believe, uh, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the twentieth and twenty-first. Yes. Uh, so those those are are good candidates. If those guys, uh, those teams say, okay, well, uh, you know, our guy may still be there later on in the first round but if we can get one or two more picks and and, and trade down and and create just more 
a bigger pool of, uh, of picks. Those two teams, I think, are, are teams to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think I think that's right about the right cost too. I think last year when Detroit moved up for Cosa, it was I think they went up eight spots. I want to say, and it, it cost them. It was either five or eight spots, but it cost them a second and a fifth. And so having that, you know, yeah. that surplus of picks in that two through four range is is definitely the market price. Yeah, I mean, Corey, I would have a question for you though. I mean, I think the the relevant thing here is that you know, late teens, early twenties of the first round. Do you see a potential top pairing defenseman still being available in that range in this draft? I mean, probably not. <laughs> those yeah. guys go. Those guys go. I think there's a you know one or two guys I think are they're intriguing. They have a lot of potential. Like I think the the three defensemen that are really talented that will probably go somewhere in that teens to twenty range are the two uh, is the the two CHL defensemen Kevin Korchinski and Pavel Mitnikov. Uh, and Korchinski, I expect will go really high in the draft. Mitnikov, it's kind of an ongoing process trying to figure out where he's going to go because of the passport. Uh, even though he yeah. played in Canada, he is he is, he is is born in Russia and is Russian nationality. Um, and we'll, we'll see how teams approach that one. So be, I, I kind of hear mixed opinions on where he'll go in the draft. And the third guy would be Leon Bischel, a big Swiss defenseman uh, who, have played, who played in Sweden. I think those are the three guys. I, I think they will all go top 20, but I think if there's going to be one – if – you asked me to pick one defenseman outside of David Yerchek and Simon Nemec who's going to pop and and be a, a really good player in this draft. It would be one of those three. And I think it's very possible you can get one of them in like that 15 to 22 range. It's possible at least. Where do you think Matejchuk goes? I mean, maybe not necessarily top pair, but that's just a guy who could figure into that kind of top four range. Yeah, yeah. I think he kind of goes the same thing in that 15 to 25 range. But he, if I, I, he wouldn't be the one I would pick. Of those guys to to pop or the one be, or the one you would move up for, I I can't see somebody moving up for Nendon Matejchuk, the five eleven right. defenseman. It just seems unrealistic. I think that's the kind of guy who teams who tend to value the small, skilled, mobile defenseman will will hope just gets gets into their spot. How about uh, Odelius and and Renzel? Again, I just don't see those guys at least in the top like the top twenty, top twenty five. I don't see yeah. people going up to get them there. I think Odelius. Probably, I think Odell is unlikely to be a first rounder. Renzel is probably a 50 50 to be a first rounder. High school guy was just okay in the USHL. 6 4 mobile with some skills. So there's a, it's a tools bet there. So I think he'll go. He didn't really have a great USHL stretch there at the end of the season, too. So I'm guessing he kind of goes in that 25 to 45 range. Odell is, I would say, more 30 to 60, depending on, you know, who likes him. Smaller defenseman, but very mobile, good first pass guy. Um, I, said, I think those other guys we mentioned would be like the, the dream candidates if you want to get like a really premium defense prospect. Uh, and those other guys, and I would add Ryan Chesley to that mix too. He's a really good player. He's a guy I could see being one of those those end of those two first round picks. I think he's going to kind of go between 25 to 35. I mean, knowing that they already have Gooley and, and Barron and the types of players those guys are, Minchikov would be a really nice fit into that mix, right? right I mean, I right. Think that's and, Ch- and Chesley probably wouldn't. Chesley is kind of just like an almost like more you know another right shot defenseman you know good skater not dynamic Matejchuk is a, and is a little bit more dynamic Minchikov is very dynamic mm-hmm. yeah yeah well dynamic is something that's kind of missing from the organization as a whole I mean if you take the NHL guys out of it um you know obviously Caulfield and Suzuki are oozing dynamic but there's not a lot of <laughs> there's not a lot of dynamic in the system right now that's not in the NHL already so I mean that kind of goes to the first overall pick debate doesn't it in that you kind of have I mean I think that's what the, the debate really structures around is that you have this one guy in Shane Wright who I know you just watched a bunch of his tape and I've watched him you know whatever 30 40 <laughs> times over the, over the right. last couple of years and and you know there there aren't a lot of games you come away watching this guy and you say like holy shit he took me out of my seat tonight um, right. but he you know for the 40 goals at 15 the nine goals and 14 points at the U18s he's top 10 OHL scoring top two center for Canada the, as a U20 we, we we know the track record and then you have this other guy in Yuri Slavkovsky who doesn't have he has a really good track record it's not even you know, close to the same 40 goals and 15 year olds was just insane uh, for what Shane Wright did. But when you watch him, whether it's at the Holinka, the world juniors, the, the the Olympics, or now at the men's world over the last week, he just pops a little bit more to, to the eye. You, know, you it's, it's a six, four guy who can skate and he's you know, toe dragging everybody and he's scoring goals and he's, you know, bullying his way to the net. Like it just, that kind of seems to be, 
he seems to be more dynamic than Shane Wright. Doesn't mean he's the right pick, but he but that seems to be at least from what I've seen over the last 12 months. Well, Ken Hughes have been uh, watching Slavkowski at the uh, at the World Championships, and and what I like there is that you know you mentioned the Ivan Lenka tournament. I mean, he's been playing. Slavkovsky's been playing almost nonstop since since last August. So he's been playing at, at the Ivan Linka. He's been playing games for the uh, the under 20 He played uh, the Olymp- team. He played for the Olympic qualifiers too for Slovakia that summer. <laughs> exactly. He played 31 games in Liga. He played the, he played the playoffs for, for, in Liga too. He played the, a couple of games at the World Junior Championships. He played at the Olympics. Now the World Championships. That's a lot of hockey. A lot of situations too. So and he was at the World Championships the prior year too. Exactly. So and. Now he's at the tail end of it, and it seems almost like he's picking up speed. So that's impressive because he hasn't run out of gas. Well, here's one thing that I intend on looking into, but I would, I'd be interested to hear you guys' take on it. Um, you know, I think of like a guy like Kale McCarr in his draft year. Like guys who, who, who pick up steam late, like coming into the draft and sort of have this gradual run up to the point where they just burst into like a top three or a top five conversation at – somewhat out of nowhere, like Slavkovsky have kind of done this season. Um, you know, I mean, from, I'm just, I'm going to look into it and, and actually try to try and find these guys. But I mean, what is the history of, of these late risers? Like, do they generally continue rising or do they plateau or like, what's, what's your take on it? We kind of talked about this a little bit last week, not, maybe not necessarily in, in the kind of study that you're talking about, but mm-hmm. I, we were talking about kind of why it happens, especially a lot of times right up before the draft when, you know, Slavkovsky's playing right now, it's a little different, but there have been situations, especially during the COVID years where you had a guy like Jake Sanderson rise and everyone was like, well, wh- what's going on? He's not playing hockey. Why is he shooting up right. his boards? And and we talked about kind of the, the role that like the information lag plays in this and, and that, you know, especially as lists start coming out and... NHL people start to say, hey, I think you might have this guy too low. Go back and check this again. And the guys that come to came to my mind, the first thing when you said that were Sanderson and Mason McTavish. McTavish off of that, you know, U18 yeah. tournament and hadn't played the whole year. I think those guys both had pretty strong, you know, draft plus one seasons. But Corey, do you have a kind of a you have a longer view on this than I do? Jack Quinn was a reserve recent yep. one that came to mind. It just right. tore up the American League this season. Uh, you can keep going back, you know, you know, over time. Uh, we, we, you know, yeah. again, the draft's very long. Even going back to the 2017 draft, uh, you had a guy like Heiskanen who kept going up and up, had that great U18 Worlds there at the end where I think it was like a point and a half per game or something like that and ends up being going going ahead of Kale McCarr mm-hmm. in that draft. So I, again, I, it's hard for me to say without doing some sort of study like I presume you will, um, but I, 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 there aren't a ton of examples that come to mind of guys who – seem like they're on the up and up and there's crash the next season. And I don't think Slavkovsky's going to crash. I think he's an excellent hockey player. That just It's just that I think what was 10 months ago a clear number one has looked a little closer. It makes it more of a decision. And if, you know, we've mentioned the center parts of this center versus wing, and it's a very legitimate aspect of the argument. And and it's, it's very possible Montreal will ignore, you know, not, not ignore, but maybe not, you know, fall in love with Slavkovsky based on just what he's been doing in these various tournaments. They'll go, they'll go with the guy with the, with the track record, or they might see the tools and the things he's done versus men and, and decide to be persuaded that way. You know, time will tell. When Mark Antoine was talking about, you know, the, the speed that Slavkovsky showed at the end of this run, that was the thing that has popped to me watching him at the Worlds is the, the way he's attacked, the pace that he's attacked with, um, you know, whether it's with the puck or going to get the puck. And that to me just when I, I'm at a little bit of a distance from Montreal, but that's an element to me that really stands out as something that could boost them. When you think about the shooters that they have and, and the, the intelligence that they already have to get a guy with Slavkovsky's physical tools and the speed that he plays with, it just, to me, I see an argument. Yeah, I mean, he's very different from Suzuki and Caulfield. If you're talking about their top, their top players, Suzuki and Caulfield are not elite skaters for small guys, but they got tremendous mm-hmm. skill, hockey sense, scoring ability. This guy is a, an elite athlete, like a truly elite athlete. He's physically imposing to go with a very high skill level as well, even if he doesn't have the long history of scoring that Shane Wright does. I would just, I would also just add that all year, well, not all year, but definitely since Martin St. Louis took over, there was a revolving door of wingers next to Suzuki and Caulfield. Um, Hoffman got a look there. Anderson got a look there. A variety of players were shuffled in and out and they got two to three or four game auditions there and none of them stuck. So 
when you're looking at holes in the organization, um, this is also one. It's just that positionally, the, the value of the position is not as high, but they need a guy like that. But they also have like 12 holes, so it's... it's yeah, <laughs> well, that's kind of the beauty of their situation, right. that they don't have to, like, they don't have to pick which hole is more important than the other, but I think, you know, conventional wisdom would be that the hole at center is the most important of, of them all, so... Certainly the hardest to fill... Yeah, outside the draft. I think we all. I, I don't think anybody. I don't think I've met that many people who disagree with that. I think most people understand that the center is more valuable than the winger. But to to Max's point earlier, there there are sometimes some years where the winger is just a better player than the center. You know, I'd go back to let's say two thousand and and uh, eleven. Would you guys take Ryan Nugent Hopkins over Gabriel Landeskog right now? It's, yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a at the minimum it's a tough decision, and I think a lot all of people right. would take Landeskog. No, I think Max's Max's comparison applies too. I think Svechnikov seems like the most impactful player in that draft so far. At least. Well, 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 Svechnikov versus Kakaniemi, especially. Well, yeah, for sure. But even I mean, Kachuk is, I guess, in that conversation yeah. too. But right, I mean, because yeah. I meant the center versus wing thing. Because right. even, a, a, even if you make it wing versus D, which I think most people would tell you D's at least close to as premium a position as, as center, right? And yes. you got two guys that are clear top pair. I, I think number ones in Darlene and Hughes, and you still, I still take in Svechnikov. So yeah, I think one of the uh, the, the the key elements of this debate if you if you narrow it down to Wright versus Slavkovsky is that when it comes to Shane Wright it's pretty easy to see how his 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 attributes would translate into the NHL and I think that there's a very very low risk related to that player whereas with Slavkovsky you have to wonder well with all the great toolkit that he's got which of his attributes are going to translate and which are not And it, it factors with the not only the fact that he's playing on the on the big eyes, but there's there's a difference just as in in his style of play between when he plays with his team uh, with TPS Turku in, in Liga and when he plays for the national team. Uh, you know, on, on when he plays in Liga, it seems as though he's they ask him more to he's a lot of a puck carrier he's not just a shooter but he's a puck carrier whereas with the slovakian team we've seen him being f1 a lot more often and he's very effective on the forecheck he's he, he can do takeaways and stuff like that but it, it seems as though it, it his role might might showcase different tools and and which role is he going to be given and it's going to and this will depend on which uh, assets that he's got are going to be transferred the best to the North American game. And I think that there's a little bit of a, a flux there, a little bit more uncertainty. Uh, clearly, his puck possession skill is something that's that he's going to bring to the North American game, and he's going to be great at that. His, his shot, is uh, when it touches the net, it's great. Uh, but is he going to be more a guy that's going to Uh, try to stick and hold through traffic because he tends to go in busy areas. He's not he's not a guy who is going to look for the open pockets. He he skates into in busy places. He reminds me almost a bit of Alex Galchenyuk in that sense. But he's also he su he surprised me also has how good of a puck carrier he is. And I think that's the dimension that if he's able to bring this to North America is going to add a serious dimension to his game and bring him. You know, make him a lot more of a versatile player, being able to put him on any line. I think I think one thing to bring it back to the kind of the beginning of this conversation that we don't know about, because the one guy we haven't mentioned, obviously, or in great detail is Logan Cooley. Sure. Um, and I think the one question I have about the new front office is to what extent their familiarity with, you know, not only USA Hockey, but like the northeastern part of the United States and 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 the players that have kind of gravitated around uh Ken Hughes's sons and Martin St. Louis kids and Jeff Gordon's kids and just that the kids that they've watched grow up just because they've been around their own kids um what kind of influence that's going to have on them I mean it just you know it's 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 kind of delicious that Ken Hughes becomes a general manager in his son's draft year and just happens to know a whole bunch of these kids and has been watching them since they were whatever, 12, 13 or 14 years old. And so I don't know what, I don't know what kind of an influence that's going to have, but I mean, Logan Cooley's right there and he's a kid that they know like really well. And I don't know how much that's going to play into their decision here. It's a great point when Chris Draper was running the draft or he is running the draft, but one of the ones that he ran, I don't, I think it was last year's, 
was I think the it was either the year or the year after his son's like birth year and an age group and he had coached in it, it and they actually drafted two thousand and twenty. Right. So yeah, so and so Keenan went in twenty twenty and then last year they took uh Carter Mazer and Red Savage, both of whom had either played for or against Draper's like minor hockey teams. And it's like it's all it's a similar age group. He knew these guys from playing with or against them in, in Metro Detroit. And they took two of those guys. And I think you're making a great point. Sometimes you it's that extra little bit of familiarity that tells you, yeah, I know exactly how this kid, you know, how, how he what, what makes him tick. I mean, just you look at the prospect they got in the Ben Sherat trade, Ty Smolanik. I mean, he played with with those kids. Yeah. They knew him because he had been playing he played in those leagues or in those games and they they had seen him play at a young age. And I I, I listen, I they they didn't come flat out and and admit that that's why they did it, but it had to play some role in in identifying that guy to go get in a trade like that as as basically the, the kind of the throw in prospect, you know. Especially because the buzz around Smolanik, like around the industry, wasn't that this guy's a top prospect that you had to have. So like this, he was not. Yeah. If, if you pulled people around NHL, they weren't saying Smolanik was a top three, top five prospect in the Panther system. So this is obviously a guy that they knew really well. He played in Connecticut. They th- that probably was a variable. Has the move? Uh, by the way, has the move to uh, his move to Wisconsin been confirmed? Because I haven't seen that. Because there were rumors that he was le- leaving Quinnipiac and and going he, to. He is Wisconsin. leaving. He is leaving Quinnipiac. I, I don't know whether it was Wisconsin or not. I haven't followed his transfer particularly, or if I did, I, yeah. I forgot. But he is. He is. Le- he is leaving Quinnipiac. All right. Well, I guess uh, we, we've pretty much taken you right up against our time limit here, guys. But uh, <laughs> it was a great conversation. Really appreciate you both coming on. I uh, would encourage everybody to make sure you read Arpin and, and Mark Antoine's work on The Athletic. They're going to do a tremendous job covering every facet of this uh, lead up to the, to the draft, whether it's about number one or their many, many Montreal's many, many other picks. Uh, so whether you're a Canadians fan or not, uh, definitely uh, some, some content you're going to want to key into. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, guys. All right, let's pivot now uh, into our mailbag. And I want to start off with one that's really more in the NHL sphere. Uh, It comes from CF3234, who wants to know, where do the Florida Panthers go from here? That's a good question because I think they obviously went all, all in at that trade deadline. And they have very little capital now left for future trade deadlines or off-season trades to make. They have, I think, one top three round pick in the next two years. They have no first round pick for the next three drafts. And they traded Owen Tippett, who may not have fully realized his potential as a 10th overall pick, but is a good player. He, you know, he's a player that's going to help the Philadelphia Flyers win games going forward. And they don't really have a lot of prospect capital left. I like Mackie Samuskevich. I like Grigory Denisenko. They're both talented wingers. I don't know if they're ever going to get huge hauls for them at this at this stage, but they're valuable assets. But even if they don't, even if they lose Giroux, they lose Sherratt, I still think this is a really good team, and they will absolutely be a contender again next season, and they should have be a threat in the playoffs. But it's it's tough to swallow after seeing how dominant that offense was. I'm not sure how much of that series you watched, but it just seemed like Barkov and Huberdo and Giroux, they just never got it going offensively. They never seemed like they were threats. And I think all three of them don't exactly have the greatest of pace in them. And it just, it never seemed like, they, they played really well that last game. Obviously, they got nearly 50 shots. It just never felt like their top guys were that threatening, at least consistently. Yeah, I watched almost the entire series and I, I agree. And the thing I, the question that I never really felt like I could answer was like, why is this happening? Is this like a situation of, you know, Tampa, Tampa has been through this so much. They know how to play playoff games. And I do think that they shift their game into something that is just take away your, your big guns. And, and obviously, um, to some extent, it happened a little against Toronto as well. But I think Toronto had actually shown that they, they learned from, from having that happen to them in previous playoffs. And so I guess I wonder, like, is this a, Florida's still learning about the playoffs thing, or is this a stylistic thing that, that's intrinsic to their game that just didn't work? It might be a bit of both, and you know, probably just a little bit of bad luck too, and just you have some off games at the worst time kind of thing. But, I mean, you can use for that first argument, you know, Barkov and Huberto and Ekblad haven't really played that many playoff games in their in their long career. They certainly haven't played against you know, top teams like this that, that often in this kind of context. So it, it could be a little bit of that. 
you can make some arguments that someone like a Huberto or Giroux's games weren't are not really built for the the kind of that what what happens in the playoffs. But that's why they got Ben Sherratt is to try and have that kind of counterbalance, and it just it just didn't work out. I didn't find the problem. To, I know there was the one really obviously egregious defensive play in, in this series that people will, will point to, but I didn't find that the problem was with their defensive game, really. Sure. I, I think it was just it was scoring. and that, So that's where, like, I think Ben Chirot did exactly what they needed him to do. I just wonder if they need that. I don't know if it's like a Nick Paul or whatever it was, but that kind of presence. I, I mean, it, it really hurts that you got out goalied and you're paying your goalie $10 million or whatever, or whatever it is that Bob Rofsky's getting paid. It's... The Bobrovsky contract just hurts so much right now. I, I thought he was fine though. Like he, I think he, was, he was the reason. He, that, yeah, he, okay, he was it. fine for fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was fine. But I mean, they got out goalie nearly every game there. No shame getting out goalie by Vasilevsky. To no, be like, no, there yeah. isn't. But yeah. if you if you're paying this guy to be a sure. superstar, and he's and it looks like an average starting goalie, it's not enough. Yeah, you're, you're, to your point, you're paying him more than Vasilevsky's getting paid, and and obviously Vasilevsky was to me the difference in the series. So, a uh, lot a lot of questions I think for the Florida Panthers. What's one move? I don't know. I don't know how long we want to keep going on this. Is there one obvious move that you'd like to see them make? It's tough, right? Because again, that offense was just so good in the in the regular season. It just I know they got called the comeback cats a lot because they were just they just scoring anytime they would go down. It's it's tough. They look like they were a really complete team. It, other than, you know, hopefully Spencer Knight taking a big step forward and giving them really, two really good goalie options. It's tough to see what what's going to happen there, right? And the toughest part of it is they tr- they went all in. They traded so many picks. I think they've traded all three of their next three first round picks. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and so like even if you want to go make a, a splash, you're limited by what you can do. You're really limited to basically free agency, and and they're up against the cap. I think they've got a couple deals coming off, but you know it, it's yeah, it's they, not going to be easy. They need Denisenko to turn to something too. Like he has not been good in the American League. They need they need somebody to come up now because they are not going to be able to get it uh, by the trade market. To me, Zach Hyman has been awesome for Edmonton, and I'm not, obviously they're not going to get Zach Hyman, but that's the that's to me like the kind of piece that they're missing is is that guy who can score that ugly goal right at the crease. Uh, that that's the only way to me that you're going to beat Vasilevsky. Sam Reinhardt was that guy for them this year, but he doesn't yeah. play like Zach Hyman does. Yeah. All right, that's a good one. Uh, going on to the next one is from S. Ducharme, who wants to know how do you explain that Shane Wright is both described as being an extremely responsible two way center. And as lacking consistent effort by others, this kind of actually came up in our conversation with with the Montreal writers. Mark Antoine said, like, you know, there are times where you wonder, like, is he kind of fully engaged? And it was interesting to me. Like, it's an interesting. I I necessarily hadn't expected to hear that about Shane Wright. Yeah, and it's been a common criticism from NHL scouts I've talked to who watched him, particularly in the playoffs, particularly in the second half of the season. Is you know, I've said it many times, and I believe it that I think this guy's a very good two way center. I think he competes well. But it's fair to say there were plenty of games this season. You watched him, and and it wasn't the case. He wasn't competing hard. He wasn't making a difference in that in those games. He seemed kind of sleepy. And I had talking to somebody about this last week who, who works in the league, and he I think he made an argument that that made a lot of sense to me, in that he believes the compete is strong. You know, you don't do what he did as a fifteen year old in the Amer- in the OHL. If you're if you if you don't have a high compete level, you don't do what you did at the U18s as an, as an underage. If you don't have a high compete level, you don't make Canada's under twenty team. If you don't have a high compete level as a seventeen year old, but it's fair to say, even though he he has shown that historically, he did not show that this season in large stretches. I would still grade his compete as an as an asset, but yeah, you go to some of those playoff games and. There were de- there were definitely some times where you were you were hoping for more out of him. That there was a little bit. I'm not even sure if it's like a compete thing. I've heard this argument made to me that it just might be he doesn't have it in him to take over a game, and and that might there might be something to that. Interesting. All right, uh, Lucas C wants to know. He says he's liked Slavkovsky at the Olympics and the World Championships, but can't help but notice everything being said about him was said about Kapokako going into the 2019 draft. Not ready to write off Kako yet, like some people have, but in fairness, many people said he would have an easier, more successful first few seasons in the NHL compared to Jack Hughes, thanks to the size and power forward skill set. And this clearly hasn't been the case. 
What do you think are the main differences between Slavkovsky and Kako? This one would have to start first and foremost with the skating. Yeah, I think that's the one and obvious difference is that Kako's historically has been a below average skater. And that was always the issues. I do remember me pointing that out at the time and Rangers fans not appreciating that. Uh, even though I did have Kako rated rather high, and I thought he'd have a much more successful NHL career today. So I was wrong about that for sure. Uh, but yeah, the skating differential is quite significant. Slavkovsky is 6'4", and as we talked about earlier in the podcast, he can play with pace. He can move. He will be able to put NHL defensemen on their on their heels, and and Kako just can't do that. That's just not that's not his game. He, I thought the power would translate quicker. I thought when I watched him this year, I saw a little bit more of that. You know, playing hard, winning battles, getting to the net. But those first few seasons as a teenager, he struggled to do that. I think Slavkovsky is going to be able to get to the net easier because he is one bigger and two faster. I'll also add, I've liked Kako's playoffs more than I've liked any other part of, of stretches that I've seen from, from him in the NHL. Like I, I think his game just seems to be suited to this style. I mean, him and Lafreniere have looked awesome in these playoffs. I, I, you can't discount everything you've seen the last, the last two years, but if I was a Rangers fan watching those two play right now, I, you're, you're excited about, where those kids can go going forward. Absolutely. And, and I think just this is the time of year you want to see it, right? You, you'd, pref- you'd probably prefer a, a player who, I mean, you got to get there, but uh, you prefer a player who, okay, maybe the regular seasons aren't exactly right, but once the playoffs start, they're tailor-made for it, I think. What, what does producer Chris think? He's, he's a Rangers fan. He just slacked us. He's very happy. <laughs> Thrilled that we're talking about his, about his guys. Producer Chris, come into the conversation. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I, I am very excited. It's 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 heartening to see, uh, uh, particularly Alexi Lafreniere play the way he's playing. He's showing a lot of leadership. He's physical. He's probably been the Rangers' most consistent forward throughout the playoffs so far. All right, thank you for your input, producer Chris. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> That's Chris. He's great. He's he's the he's the one that makes this uh, this work. Uh, Big Mo Cider wants to know: peanut butter on hot dogs? Yes, no, or jail? It's a no for me. I think. Jails is is harsh. I I understand when people put like their weird food takes online, people get all kind of up in arms. But I'm all for creativity. I I have no issue with people getting a little bit wild with the, with their food takes. I've actually eaten a hot dog that had nerds on it, and the bun was cotton candy. So I don't think I'm in much of a place to scold. I I did do it for a story. It was not something I would have ordered organically, but I did do that. Okay. However, oh, ho, 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 back up, back up. What, what kind of story could have you doing that? I went, um, when I was covering the Tigers, I, I did like a minor league, like road trip to their affiliates and the Erie Seawolves, which is their double A sold this hot dog at a concession stand. And so I was like, all right, I guess if I'm here. I got to try it. So I did. It was awful. Uh, made it hard to eat nerds for a while, to be honest, but um, anyway, I'm saying jail for this one, and it's because I'm allergic to peanut butter. So if you put peanut butter on my hot dog, you, you might go to jail. I, that might be murder. Murder might be harsh, you know, maybe maybe you know negligence, but but uh, we will keep peanut butter away from you from your hot dogs. I appreciate that. Uh, Avco Cup says, do you intend to do a full seven round mock draft again this year? Very easy question to answer. Yes, it just it's, it's usually closer to the draft. Did you go back and count? Like, did you nail any like random fifth rounders last year? I did. Yes. Who was it? Uh, there was a couple of them. I think I got Carolina's third round pick. I think I got Toronto's fifth round pick. Um, the year before, oh, like our friend like was like laughing about. It. I think I nailed like three or four Montreal's picks. Uh, I think I got like beyond to them. I got Caden Gooley to them. I think I got it was either Jan Vishak or Luke Tuck to them. It was kind of it was kind of hilarious. I'm, I'm sure some of the Montreal hockey off people were staring at that one and, and and wondering where the leak was in the organization. <laughs> and I think I got Oliver Kaplan into them last year too. So <laughs> those are the hardest ones. So that that is I'm shocked that you got that many. Uh, John D says, "Why? Well, just Matt's just if you know like roughly the range guys are going yeah, in, sure. like, and you, you just by dumb luck you're gonna. But I think I got Toronto's like fifth round pick two years in a row. So now like some Leafs fans think I like I, I got like an in. I have like their list something like that, which I which I don't. So pay extra close attention on that seven round mock to Toronto's fifth rounder. That one's gospel. John D <laughs> wants to know why Matt Savoy's ranking seems to be falling. Uh, kind of the reverse of what we were talking about earlier with some guys who, I mean, Savoy's still playing as well, but uh, why do most feel he will be easily here? He will be a winger and not a center in the NHL. Is it because he's too small and would get pushed off the puck too easily? Uh, well, to answer the first part of the question, production slowed a little bit in the first half. 
taking off the first power play, just not making as big an impact, I would say, in the recent games as he did in the first half of the season. And to the to the second part of the question, it, it, yes, that is is it. It's just there's just not that many five foot nine, five foot ten centers in the NHL. We had this debate with Frank Nazar, and we've had this debate. Even I've talked to some NHL scouts who are not a thousand percent convinced Logan Cooley is going to be an NHL center just for, for that reason. We love him, but there's only so many of them, and he might be the next one. He might not. Lane Hudson could be the next Tory Krug. He might play only five NHL games. It's just when you, whereas when you're somewhere between you know five eleven to six foot three, when there's just more of them, your your odds are higher. Fair enough. Uh, Matt S wants to know. I assume that's not Matt Savoy, but you never know. Says, have you ever systematically looked at players that have exceeded your rankings? I know you look back at individual draft years, but have you gone like wider to single out player characteristics or players or characteristics that overperform? Like guys with questionable foot speed with good hockey sense. Is there like a – I think they're looking for a market inefficiency here, Corey. I can I can see where they're going with that. And I think you go over a long period of time. And it's – I think that especially in certain stretches of the 2000s, you saw size and skating were, were getting overrated. But at least in terms of my list, it's kind of been the other way where I feel like I've overrated those elements a little bit in, in favor of the guys – instead of valuing guys who have big pro projections – uh, although there have been plenty of times, like when I like when I, when I rated Nikita Kucherov really highly, that it, that it was it was the other way too. So, but I, I've missed on guys who have underrated their you know just the physicality elements, the pro projections, et cetera, et cetera. It's tough to find unless you really do a real coherent study of it, which I haven't. You look at your lists, always go back in time, and you you squirm and you're like, what the hell was I thinking? But I haven't done a systematic process like that. It's kind of interesting. I, I'm trying to remember what the book was. I don't know if it was like an Astro Ball kind of thing or something like this, but I remember it was a baseball book. A- Astro Ball hasn't aged well, has it? Well, no, not not in not in a lot of ways. But in this way, it might. Uh, I, I think there was something. I think there was something in there about them kind of like sc- like using some algorithm or whatever to, to kind of scout their own scouts. Yes, I, I, yeah, I, I remember reading that. Yes, and they would like, they would curve their scouts if their scouts graded too harshly. They would elevate their their grades on average and stuff like that and yeah yes they would they would they had like a they they had algorithms to kind of go back and like evaluate the way their scouts were doing things right so if a guy was like always giving out too low speed grades and, and the speed grades that he would give out were like consistently like no this guy's actually a, a above average runner and you rate him average they would just correct for that automatically i thought that which, was interesting which would be something that could apply to me because i think a lot of our readers think that i think everybody's a bad skater well it, so okay actually i do want to talk about this so that's like a bell curve thing, right? Like it's just, it's not so much that two guys who are both graded as average skaters are identically gifted skaters. It's just that you're going for within a standard deviation, right? Right. Yes. I mean, yeah, I'm grading on a one to six scale. You could split hairs and do all kinds of things like where, where teams have like sub levels in their skating grades. You got to grade all like whatever the first few steps, the, the speed, the edge work etc but i'm just doing a straight one to six and if you're doing straight one to six and uh on on that scale three is the average that's you're just going to be handing out a lot of threes yeah and and those threes could look different like it could look and a lot of twos and a lot of fours right absolutely all right cool uh lars thorsell okay he's trolling me here if you were to travel to europe to watch some prospects where would you like to go okay that part is fine but what would your first meal be some local cuisine or mcdonald's nuggets well you just went to europe for your first time so what was your first meal this is what he's trolling me about my first meal was not mcdonald's nuggets my second meal however was mcdonald's nuggets but it wasn't because i felt like i just needed to try sweden's nuggets it was because everything was closed on Sunday, there was nowhere open to, for me to go get food, and I was jet-lagged. I had to get the nuggets. Uh, my first meal was a burger at a uh, local sports bar called O'Leary's that I really enjoyed. Wait, wait, hold on. You traveled all the way to Sweden, and you went to O'Leary's? I went to O'Leary's because uh, there was a game on that I wanted to watch, and uh, one of my friends there told me that that would be the best place to watch it. All right. There you go. I got wings, a burger, and a Swedish beer. So your first couple of meals were a wings, burger, and chicken nuggets. And I had five steaks on that trip. Yes, I was not. <laughs> I was not real adventurous. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you're up next. Where, where in Europe would you like to go? Uh, and what would your first meal be when you got there? My favorite city I've been to since, in, when I've been traveling to Europe is Prague. 
nothing against any of the other big cities I've been to, uh, but just Prague has always just stood out to me as, as a place um, I love. And I usually do, unlike Max, I do try to get the local cuisine. So I would be getting probably some goulash on um, my first meal when I get to Prague. Okay, that's unfair though, because if I went to Prague, there I already know the Czech food that I would get for my first meal. It's called Switchkova, and Zadina has told me about it, and I looked it up, and it looks incredible. So if I was in Prague, I would have been more adventurous too. All right, well, there you go. All right. Uh, next one is Dylan H. Would love some insight into why Ogren's production is so much higher than Le Karamaki on the same team or line. Um, what attributes make Le Karamaki the seemingly consensus better prospect of the two when projecting to higher leagues? Why the disparity in production this year? Is that true? Was Ogren's production in the J20 better than Lakaramaki's? So he he must be talking about the J20 level here because obviously Lakaramaki got more SHL uh, you know opportunity there, but um, and now produced him at the U18s too, right? But at the J20 level, it is an interesting one. Yeah, I mean Ogren had a monster season down there. He was nearly two points per game, and it wasn't just you know that team was good. They went, I think they went to the finals uh, in the in the J20s. He was a leading player for, for that team. Um, it's a fair argument. I think the first thing that kind of stands out is the skating. I don't think Ogren's a strong skater. I think Lekaramaki is a, is a strong is a stronger skater. So a little, a little bit more pro projection there. Probably why Lekaramaki was able to have the success in the SHL that that Ogren wasn't able to in the limited number of games. Although he was played bad, just just didn't you know, Lekaramaki before he got injured looked like he was an important part of that year garden lineup. Uh, and so that'd be the main thing. And I think Lekaramaki just has a little bit more skill shooting ability. There's a little bit of a differential there in terms of their birth months too, where you think like if Lekaramaki could just put on weight, especially with a better skating stride, he'll, he'll be a better pro. But it's a legitimate argument. And Ogren's uh, season was fantastic at the junior level. Just every, you know, He looked like he was getting two, four points every time he played down there. Another one about kind of your 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 scouting scale here from Christopher T. And he notes that it is written with genuine curiosity, I assume, so that you know he's not trying to be mean. But he says a few years ago, around the time Makar was debuting, he, he thinks he rated his skating as slightly above average or perhaps a 55 back then on the baseball tool scale. I could have sworn I rated it as a 60, but anyways, yeah, go on. I can fact check that while you talk, but uh, here you go. What went into that evaluation and do you still agree with it? That's a good question. Uh, I would probably still have it as somewhere between a 60 to 65 right now. I think uh, I think people would be surprised by the 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 guys I think in the NHL who are great skaters. I would probably wouldn't have the highest of highest grades on if cause, because like I said it's a bell curve. If McDavid and I think McKinnon are the 80s or like the, on the one through six, they're the they're the six. Then you you can't give out sixes to everybody because that's McKinnon and McDavid. So, you know, Kale McCarr would be a four or a five then for me. I, I just, I don't see him on the level as those guys, even though his skating is fantastic, great speed, edge work. He's very, very elusive. You know, just, he's a fantastic skater. Just, just even getting a four or a five, even getting a five on a scale of one to six is, is like extremely high praise. I don't know if like in this draft, this upcoming draft, that I have a five on almost anybody. Because they're so rare, it's realistically it's supposed to be on the NHL level. It's a top one percent NHL, right? Yeah, right. That two, almost everybody kind of fits within that two, two to four range that's in the NHL. If they're a one, they're probably not in the NHL, and if they're a five or a six, they're exceptional. Yeah, that makes sense. You did have a sixty on Kale McCarr's skating, so you can so, rest easy at night. Yeah, I I, I sleep like a baby. <laughs> would you still have it as a sixty, or would you bump it up? It would be it would be a debate for me. I would need to kind of go back and look at it. my my initial instinct is to give it a sixty or which would be a four on on the one to six. Um, but I could see a four or a five. Yeah. All right. Uh, Mr. Jared Moore says, uh, "What's the biggest flaw with Slavkovsky's game? And should you read anything into him, quote unquote, only having ten points in thirty one games in Liga? That is the biggest flaw in his profile is that production in in league play. Yep, absolutely. And even when he played junior games with TPS." This season, it was really good production. It wasn't outstanding production. He wasn't scoring something like three points per game in that league where you thought, oh, he's clearly way too good for this league. Uh, there's no, why, why, why do we even send him here? So, I mean, that is the debate. And when, when I watch him and when I grade out the tools, there is no weakness for me other than the fact that he's not a center. But it, it raises the question. It's why you look at both the numbers and and scout the players because it's possible that you're missing something when you watch him 
that the numbers might reflect and, and vice versa. It may be, I, maybe he is not as skilled as I think he is. Maybe he's not as competitive as, as I think he is because he's not getting it done versus men. And the counter argument to that would be, and what I've said, you know, for, for now several episodes is that TPS was a very good team this year. They went to the league of finals. So not a lot of opportunity, at least in the first half of the season there for him. But that being said, you can look at some of the guys who have become stars out of that league, uh, who were draft eligible while in Liga, and he is far behind where you would have wanted to bend production wise. Could you quibble at all with the playmaking? Maybe I mean at the World Championships he does have several assists, but you look at kind of the Olympic track record and it was seven goals, no assists. Could you quibble with playmaking? Would that be a fair one? It is like yes, yeah, like, it might just be gold. I said earlier, like where the, when I said he might not be as skilled as I thought. Right? You can say maybe he's not as smart as I thought. He doesn't make as many plays. It, it, that's all I think fair game. All right, fair enough. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to. Try yeah, to I don't think. That I think he's plenty smart. But again, I, I yeah. might be wrong, and the numbers might inform why I'm wrong. I don't remember if it was the Switzerland or the Denmark game, but he had a sequence with Tatar uh, where he set him up right in front for for a look, and then he kind of got it back. And I thought it had a really creative way to get that puck on net and got the rebound to Tatar, who then missed another uh, another look with it. But I, I thought that was a really intelligent sequence by him, and he's 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 very clearly a smart player. But just trying to to uh, humor the question here. Sure. Um, Tiernan C says, with Carey Price's future in doubt, Habs fans undoubtedly start thinking about the future in net. What are your thoughts on Montreal's goaltending prospects? Is Caden Primo still a legit NHL prospect? What's his ceiling? And your thoughts on Jacob Dobes, Frederick Nissen uh, Dickow, and Joe Verbedek. Do the Habs have any goaltending prospects who could be a 1A or 1B in the next five years? I'm very impressed you read that whole question out loud. You could have just like, stopped at the goalie part, but you... Even went through like the Danish goalie's name, which I, you know, you pronounced it right. So very impressive. Heck yeah, I love to hear it. <laughs> All right, anyways, uh, Primo, I think, is a backup. Not sure any of those other guys are NHL guys. I think Dick Howell is, was like kind of someone interesting, kind of a, kind of like a, kind of, he's kind of a home run shot there. Hasn't really, really developed that well, but he's got a prayer, probably. Um, but yeah, they need a goalie of the future. I don't see that guy in the system right now. Anything could happen with goalies. Uh, you know, I could be wrong on Primo, I could be wrong on one of those other guys, but I wouldn't say, the clear goalie of the future, I don't see him in that system right now. And again, they have got so many picks, they, they can afford to take a, a shot or two on, on a fairly early one this year. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it's not an amazing goalie class. There's no Kosa, there's no Wallstedt in, in, in this class, but there's, I think both Tyler Brennan, Tobias Leonin will go in the second or third round. So they have picks in those range, and that could be a, that could be a, t- a time to take one of those guys. Yeah. Uh, Matt. Many year, I think it is. Uh, here's what I'm dying to know. Who are the heart and soul prospects in this draft? Who are the guys considered warriors by their peers who drag their team into the fight every game? Do any of the top 32 prospects fit that description? That's a good question. I think there's a couple, even including the top guys in the draft. I think you really love on the defense side, you love how hard David Yerchek plays. You love how hard Leon Bishel plays, how hard Ryan Chesley play. All th- you know different spectrum of talent there, but they, but all three of them are highly competitive, physical defensemen who uh, will give it, will give their all, and 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 be wanted out there in those tough situations. Uh, up front, I think you love kind of the way Ivan Mirosachenko plays. Uh, you love the way Rutger McGordy plays. Uh, uh, Marco Casper is a really competitive uh, player. Maybe they're not among the top, top names, but like, I think those big Q defensemen, Maverick Lambert and Noah Warren, are big, hard-to-play against guys who uh, I think coaches will lean on in the NHL uh, because, they, because they play that kind, of, that kind of style. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. You can subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial, and then it's just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for $1 a month for six months, and you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Take care. We'll talk to you soon.